Howdy, I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we're laying the groundwork for our land, ourselves, and for generations to come by looking at the way every thread of life is connected to one another. Communities above ground mirror the communities below the soil, which mirror the vast community of the cosmos. As the saying goes, as above, so below. Join me as we take a curious journey into agriculture, biology, history, spirituality, health, and so much more. I can't wait to unearth all of these incredible topics alongside you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and I have a different flavor podcast today. One of the things that I have found in exploring our food system, our connection to food and agriculture is that once you start exploring, you find that in many ways, our food and how we eat is tied to everything else, like a clown pulling a a string of flags from its mouth. Things just keep on coming and pretty soon you're looking at the education system and the medical system and... For me, there was always a connection between my food and death. I think that years of being a vegetarian and then leaving that to be a butcher and then wanting to raise all of my own food here on the farm, that has always been a bit of a guiding force in in how I see the world. But it was something that I wanted to begin to explore on a deeper level here on the podcast. And as I did that, I was actually recommended the film In the Parlor, directed and written by Heidi Boucher, who is our guest today. Heidi is also a home funeral helping hand and has been so for the last 40 years. And I think that this is a really beautiful podcast and I encourage everyone to to listen to it. It it, it isn't always comfortable to face our relationship with death. And I know that for me, one of the things that I found in researching this episode is that for me, it's not comfortable to face my relationship with grief and with fear of loss and abandonment. And that that is tied together so inextricably with death that it is almost impossible to tease out which is which. But in doing this podcast and going deep into the subject matter, I, I found I found some peace and some healing. For anyone that might be coming to this podcast in a space where they are looking for immediate information and have experienced a death, I just want you to know that there are resources out there for you, that there are people out there that, that do this work and that are there to help you, and that this is something that is possible to have guides and educators, that it is legal in all 50 states to care for your loved ones after death. It is legal in all 50 states to opt out of practices like embalming. There are some, some caveats to that, but for the most part, there are people out there willing to help you and it truly is possible to find a different space of how we care for our dead. I think with that, I actually wanted to talk just a little bit about the funeral industrial complex. 
I was really struck at what a massive industry this is. And it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense that an industry would arise around something that is inevitable for all of us. But I was struck by the numbers. Uh, the funeral industry at the time of this recording in 2023 represented about a $20 billion industry where you have an increase in funeral costs that have risen 1,328% in just four decades. Caskets are being marked up on average 289% from wholesale to retail. And cremation has gained in popularity immensely from about 3.56% in 1960 to a projected 70% of all funerals will be by cremation by 2030. I think that it's interesting to peek at these statistics and also to understand that a growing percentage of funeral homes are actually a chain. Uh, most of them SCI, which is the name of the chain. They have a $4 billion market cap and a growing percentage of the funeral home industry under what look like little brands. And they're at 14% and rapidly growing. And I think that looking at that is part of just understanding the nature of this and understanding what it would mean, much like we have had this resurgence of wanting to give birth at home, that there is a resurgence of wanting to care for our dead. This is very possible. And like you'll hear in the course of this conversation, it is not an option that some of us even know exists. I certainly did not know what my options were before diving into this which was a big reason that I wanted to bring you this episode was that so we all had the information that we needed to do things differently if we so choose. And I want to be really clear about this. There is no right. There is no wrong in all of this. There is no good way. There is no bad way. There is no shaming in any of this. This is all meant to serve as information of what is possible and not a suggestion for what you might do. As you're going through this podcast, I want to to invite you to treat yourself so gently, so tenderly as we explore a difficult topic and as we traverse what I think are not super explored waters. I am not going to have a long call to action or set of ads inside of this podcast. I really want this to be just a space for us to explore together and and to hold it tenderly. Anything you're looking for is going to be in the show notes. I have a substack where we're going to be exploring more about death as well, which I will give a small shout out to. And without further ado, I really want to introduce this week's guest. And I really want to encourage you all to seek out in the parlor. Heidi is working to get this into a digital format, but in the interim, she has DVDs available and 
also offers incredible opportunities to provide screenings within your community. This is something that I'm looking at for myself. I think that the exploration of death done in community is exactly what we need. It is a space where we can then be held and have conversations and really explore our own curiosity or our own grief around some of these topics together. So I encourage you to reach out to her. Her email is in the show notes. And I am just so grateful to Heidi for doing this work and for showing us this beautiful work throughout the course of her film in the parlor. So here's Heidi. I am just, and I know I said this before before I hit record, but I am so grateful for you coming on to explore this topic with me because this exploration has been a real a real gift for me. It hasn't it hasn't been an easy exploration, but it's been a real gift, and I'm really grateful for the work that you've put out into the world and that you're you're doing in this space. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm excited to be here and was really. Um, I was actually really thrilled to to read a little bit about you and to see what you were doing. So the feeling is mutual. I'm excited to be here and hope I can shed some more insight to your process. Yeah. yeah, Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for that. I wondered if we might start and... I want to be really careful that throughout the course of this conversation, I don't conflate some of the work that I've done as a farmer with the work that you do and and these sort of different spaces of holding very, very different deaths. But one thing that's always been important to me whenever whenever I'm in a space where death has been is present or is going to be present has been setting a setting a tone or an intention for that space. I find that with death, especially the emotional spectrum that it elicits from us is, is wide. And I like to leave space for the, everything that can come up in exploring some of these topics um, from, from grief and sadness to joy and even laughter and discomfort. And I wondered if there was any way in which you wanted to kind of set the conversation as somebody who, who does this work. As far as the tone and, and that sort of, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think what you're saying is actually spot on that, um, without sounding glib or irreverent or dark, we have to remember that this is holy conversation. This is sacred conversation. But within that, there's always room for humor. There's always room for lightness. There's always room for things as long as they're respectful, you know, and as long as we can um, know that we're talking from our experience and our truth, I think I think pretty much anything goes, you know, I think we were respectful people and I would imagine that your audience is also respectful. Absolutely. And I think they're, I think they're interested in this conversation. It was actually a a guest that had been on that brought up the movement of home birth and what it would mean to bring death home as well. And it was that moment where I got really curious about what was possible that I hadn't considered that as an option and that I didn't know that that was out there. And so, so I think that this is a conversation that people 
our craving. I think we have, we have tucked death away. We have hidden it in so many ways. And I think, I know that for me personally, and that has created more fear. And I wondered if we might start there with the ways in which we've, we, the ways in which home death and funerals have changed over the course of the last 150 years or so and and what led us to how we we generally conceive of funeral care today mm-hmm. it's a big question and there has been a lot of talk about death in recent years just I think because there's a consciousness opening up somewhere and we had the whole home birth movement and now, ooh, can we bring death home? And yeah, we absolutely can. You know, as we know, families, this is nothing new. This this is old stuff. And families have been caring for their newly born and newly dead, if you will, <laughs> forever since the beginning of time. So I have to always say, okay, wait, this is not new. We're just waking up and going back to what we might have forgotten about, what we didn't know about, and what was hidden and taken away from us. Yeah. So people were caring for their own dead all the time, as I said, up until the, you know, the 1900s, the 20th century, really part of the 20th century. And things started changing as people started moving away into urban life more and getting more busy and then, you know, that they weren't around to do the vigils and to, to necessarily care for the dead. They were, they were off doing work. And also with the Civil War, that changed tremendously the whole culture of, of how we care for our dead. You know, with the setting up of the embalming tents on the battlefield and embalming uh, the soldiers so that they could be taken away to their families often taking days and days and days to get home and arriving home in really gruesome uh, situations. So President Lincoln basically made it unconsciously, but fashionable to be embalmed because he was embalmed and he was put on the train and he was state to state to state to preserve his body so people could pay their respects. And that kind of shifted the tide of, oh, gosh, if the president is getting embalmed, then, hey, look at this thing. And things kept progressing, progressively changing in, you know, continuing the, what's the word, medicalized and monetized. Mm-hmm. Uh, the monetized part came with a fervor a little bit later, but it was the 1920s, the 1930s, that kind of the funeral industry locked in and said, all right, we've, we've, there's a way for us to, to take this and to, to run with it. And I'm giving a very crass, broad overview. I mean, people, it's, it's very fascinating and people really, um, if they have the time and the interest, it, it is interesting to see the details and how complex and yet how simple something that was so sacred was taken and just thrown away, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, it didn't happen in every state. It it slowly happened across yeah. different states, and some parts of the country, especially the South, kept on to those traditions. 
So over time, as we all get busy, we all change, uh, it became kind of a status quo to have the funeral director come and take the body away and put it in one of these big fancy houses, you know, the big funeral homes. So it was sort of keeping up with the Joneses and that, you know, that, that image of affluence. And yes, we're not going to be taking care of our loved one. The funeral director will take care of our loved one. And, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting thing. And I, I think that as a society, historically, things change, you know, and things ebb and flow. But sadly, I we just lost touch. We lost touch with that sacred part of what we all go through. We all are going to die. We all are going to experience death. And um, it was taken away. It really was. And we allowed it, you know, for whatever reason. Yeah, so that's sort of, in a nutshell, the, the kind of the historical aspect. And I think that in the last 20 years, things have started to shift. Yeah, so I hope, I hope that kind of gives a little bit of a picture. That does. That really frames it beautifully. And I'm really struck by that word taken away, to use the words taken away in regards to this. And I'm also struck, you know, throughout the course of this podcast, there are a lot of things that shift at the end of the at the end of the 20th century for at the end of the 19th century for a variety of different reasons that our our food system really begins to shift that the way that we work the way that school works i mean just just the sort of cascade of different things change during that time in the rise of sort of the industrial revolution and i think that it's important to pause in that space of this is something that has been taken away because I think it has been throughout time. I mean, even when we find remains of, of hunter gatherer societies, this process of, of caring for and, and honoring our dead is perhaps a big part of what it means to be human. Yeah, I, I agree. Agree. Yeah. It's interesting that you, that you say that it, it's not just, death it's a whole slew of things it's a whole chain of different things that are that are extremely important to us as as individuals and families and communities and la 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 but yeah i, I hadn't thought of that picture before yeah yeah and i'm sure there's probably a lot more too we could dive into oh my gosh yeah Yes. And it's interesting to watch it all come together. And I think that there are probably some influencing factors there. And I think when you use the word medicalization, there's a whole different push for, for cleanliness in our food system at a, at a very interesting level during that time. Um, it's part of what ushers in processed food. And I can't help but wonder if some of that carried over into the idea of, of death being in some way unclean during that time and that that sort of narrative getting getting embedded into that space and one thing that i really heard while you were talking is that as this went on for generations, as we were separated from this, then we don't even know what we're separated from. It, it's sort of a lost knowledge. And while maybe several generations ago, 
your mother or you saw your grandmother in the parlor, as it were, you know, fast forward to today, there's no connection to that way of caring for the dead. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. It's very much like our relationship to food and to the land and to animals and to da, 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 you know, all of it. We, we, it's a stepping stone away. And the further we get, we go, Oh yeah. Why did we do that? Oh, and then it just becomes normal. And it just becomes the thing that we do. It, it reminds me of when I'm talking to people and m- mostly, well, actually several years ago when the movement wasn't even a movement and I was doing this work, I think 99 to 100% of the people that I would speak to about this just assume that everybody, everybody gets embalmed, you know, mm-hmm. and not to go dark so fast, but you're fine is like processing food. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> oh, what are you doing? It's you, you're going to make a hot dog out of that really great beef there. Okay. Well, wow. when you're embalming, you're just injecting just toxins and, and chemicals. So it's a different kind of processing, but it's processing as far as yes. I'm concerned. Yes. So there's a lot of mirroring. There's a lot of, yeah, it, it just, pe- people don't know. They just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, same for the food system, right? Like these are very, these are industries that are obfuscated. It's very opaque. It's very hard to see, to see past of some of what we're presented with. And I, and I think that that disconnects us further. I have this question for you and I, I'd like to know, do you think the way that as you see this progression, this change in the way we're caring for our dead happen over the last 100, 150 years. Do you think that the way that we conduct a funeral or the way that we have a funeral relates to how, to our relationship with death, that this changes our perception of our relationship with death? I think it can, and I think it has, and I think it does. But yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Hmm. I think it does. I think it does. I think we have, you know, we have lost a sense of ritual as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the funeral is, the funeral is a ritual. It is, it is whether, whatever faith or whatever uh, belief system you have, when one conducts a funeral, it is a ritual. And thank God, even though it has turned into a, for some, a circus, it's still a ritual. Now, I guess, and I hate to keep going back to food, but don't do it. When you go to McDonald's, it's still food, right? It's food. And what my family, what we call, we call it eat and fill, mm-hmm. right? So you can have an eat and fill funeral. You can have a funeral that's kind of a ritual, and it is a ritual. But is it nurturing? Is it fulfilling? Is it connecting you to something bigger or greater, whatever that may be? So that's a really interesting question. Yeah, and I, and I think it's worth exploring. So I don't know exactly how to answer it because I think individuals also have a different relationship with it. That Some of the conventional funerals that I've been to, and forgive me because I get really outspoken about it, Please. 
Um, we're and we're all for outspoken on this podcast. <laughs> a lot of funerals, a lot. And I will sit in the back and sometimes I'm, I'm literally wanting to pull my hair out because I feel, why are we not talking about the dead person? Why does everybody stand up and talk about themselves? I cannot oh. tell you 99% of the time when you go to a funeral, Uncle Chuck gets up and Aunt Marge gets up and they say, well, I knew it starts off with, I knew that person or I had this relationship or I, oh. it becomes about them. All right. I get it because you're trying to paint a picture and set the stage. But if we were to really stop and say, wait a minute, this is not about me right now. This really is about the person who's passed. So how do we reframe? How do we use words that are not me oriented like everything else we all do? It's me, me, me. But to stop and say, Jane was a remarkable person. And to start off thinking about that person. And then it kind of shifts the paradigm a little bit. and then. We can think about creating creating this event that's really about the other person. Now, that's a very simplistic way of, of, of saying that. But when we remember that this is a sacred, that the funeral is a sacred ritual, and we can make a ritual that is less about us, but about the person who has died, and to be be a little bit more thoughtful in how we approach it. That's one, that's one thing for me that I just get a little bit riled up about is let's make it less about ourselves and less about the trappings because a simple candle and a simple poem and flowers and coming from the right intention in a quiet, gentle way can be way more meaningful than a 15, 16, 18, $20,000 funeral with with all the stuff to, to make a show. That's just my humble opinion. That's probably not so humble. It's kind of a lot spoken. I loved um, it. Yeah. I loved it. And I think <laughs> you illustrate this so well. And in the parlor, you illustrate what is possible when we maybe sit down and take a breath and imagine what it would be to have a sacred space for this person that we so loved to transition. And you speak about those those 72 hours is, is oftentimes that three-day span is a space to give that person that has died a, a place in between, mm -hmm. a place in between here and there, wherever, wherever there is. Right. But yeah. And yeah. Well, and it, so did you, did you like the film? Was it, did it bring other stuff up to you? <laughs> yes. Yes. I loved the film. Um, it teased a lot of things out. And I, I think <laughs> I said this, I think I said this prior, you know, preparing for this interview was, was not easy. And it's funny as you were, as you were talking and as I was experiencing kind of coming through this interview, one of the things that was really present for me was teasing out my own fear of death with my own fear of grief, mm -hmm. my own fear of, of loss and, and having to go through that. And 
and separating them out because I think it's, I think it's easy to, to combine them as one. Mm-hmm. And so much of preparing about this was for me, I have a very active imagination was, um, <laughs> was, was imagining what this might be like to go through with my own loved ones and to imagine what that might feel like. And so not just to imagine my own position and my own wants and desires for my own death, but also what it would be to hold the death of others. And I think in that, that was one of the most difficult things to move through in this, but I, I, I think we're, we're always moving through. I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I've gotten past it, some mark, right? But one of the most profound things to explore within myself, when I put it that way. Yeah. That's, that's very um, insightful, actually. And I, and I think you're not alone. I think people, myself included, I don't know where it comes from. If it comes from our childhood where you fall down and you skin your knee and you're told, oh, okay, get up, you're fine, you're fine. You know, you're, you're good. And you have to kind of carry on. Does it, does it start when we're little? of not being able to express sadness or pain or the sadness of pain that we're experiencing. But I know very few people that if they're grieving, they're 100% okay with falling apart. They might be after three and a half seconds, but I think there's always this trepidation of, can I be authentically sad and and ugly crying, you know? Mm So I do think you're right. There is this fear of of grieving, and yet it's such a powerful thing, and, and we have to do it. We have to go through it. Or not even go through it. We need to walk with it. We yes. need to take it and say, okay, come on, let's go. Let's go. And just make it a friend, you know, that... <laughs> that friend that shows up unannounced unexpected and you just roll with it and we have to we have to because otherwise how do we function how do we function I think that's a big question I've held and I want to get back to the film but I also want to say this because I think I think to walk with grief and I like this because it's not something that we move through it's something that that we carry with us shifts and changes shape at times, but it is ever present. I think that it's part of what makes us human. And something I've explored in my life is that we cannot selectively numb, right? To to numb the pain, to numb the grief is also to numb the joy. And that there is this component in exploring the ways that we walk with grief that allows us greater access to joy. And I know that I sometimes think about this like some some universal seesaw or the ellipse of a planet moving around the sun, right? There's a perigee and an apogee. And and together they are what makes life rich. And in many ways we can't have one without the other. And so to embrace grief as a friend and to to let it in, to allow ourselves to feel it gives us access to maybe the breadth of life that is possible. Yeah. No, it's well well put. 
Well put. It, it, it's funny when you were, you were talking, um, I got this image of, and I don't know why I'm sharing this, but it just, it just came to me. My, my daughter is married to a, a cowboy and they live on a ranch and they do, you know, move back and forth with the cattle up from California to Oregon. And it's the whole thing, as you well know. And there they live way out, pretty remote. And um, one of the cows had a baby and the the mom died or something. And then there was this, what I think is it a little leppy? Is that what it's called? And they're Mm. without Mm. a mama or I can't remember. Mm. Anyway, there was a calf that didn't have a mom. And so they were having to bottle feed it and my grandson was involved in this process of caring for this little calf and you know as ranchers and cowboys death and life are are you know the the grass is green the sky is blue and it's not taken glibly but it's taken with this this is the cycle of life this is Mm -hmm. part of the world and our existence and i'll never forget this little calf that my I think he was five, four or five at the time, was helping his dad feed the the calf. The calf ended up not thriving and getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And I watched my grandson watch, you know, his first experience of of kind of loss. I mean, his kittens have died and, and that sort of thing. But I'd watched this and I thought, you know, this is kind of a big deal for a little boy who's been feeding and nurturing this calf, this sweet little black mamaless calf. And the baby's not, the calf's not thriving. And the calf died. And I watched my grandson at a very young age have this moment of grief mm-hmm. and how different it was from the other grief, the grief that children have, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And I checked in with myself, like, how do I, as a grandmother, support this young child who is living a very different life from most children, extremely different life from most children? How do I support him that it's okay to grieve the loss of this calf that he felt a little connection to? And also know that it's that it's okay, you know, and, and his parents are very supportive and very open to all of this and are wonderful. But it was something that it struck me. I was sad for him watching him and I get emotional thinking about because you don't want your children or your grandchildren to suffer at all. No. But how tender it was to see this little boy go through grief, like his first real grieving period. You know, it's it's a human right of passage, if you will, mm-hmm. when we when we have that moment of profound grief. And I think, and I don't know how he how grief showed up for him, but I think that children have a way of navigating things with a, a an untouched purity that that has a lot to teach us as adults of the ways that we've internalized things differently over time. Yeah, they they do. And children feed off of our emotions and how we feel about grief and yes. how we deal with it. They're, they're, they're watching us, you know, it's no joke. I, you know, I'll never forget those big 
welly tears just falling down and the quivering lip. And I thought, great, I'm glad he's able to express that when so many children and so many adults suppress it and, and don't go there. Yeah. I We've talked a lot about the what Nicolette Nyman calls the intangible benefits of raising children in farming and ranching communities. And we talk a lot about farming and ranching on this podcast. And one of the things that I've noticed as a former city girl living on a farm is that there is a lot more death here than you might encounter in the city. And you see a lot more of that breadth of life. And like you said, you know, your, your son-in-law, like the grass is green, the sky is blue. It, there's a, a reverence for it, but it's also, it's also baked in to that. And I think that when you were talking both in, in the parlor and just now you mentioned that a lot of this begins to change when we move from a rural to an urban environment, that that really changes our relationship to death. And I think that happens in more ways than just a funeral because we stop, we stop seeing these, these hard. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay that these are hard and heartbreaking events. You know, we lost a little goat kid last week and to, to touch that body and then to, to milk her mother afterwards and to, to connect with her mother in that way. I mean, it, it breaks your heart in a million little ways. And I think it asks you, can you grieve? Can you be here? Can you grieve in this, in this too? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I I've learned so much just being around my, my daughter and her husband and my grandchildren on the ranch you know I I never in a million years thought this would be part of my life watching the children out there on the 3,000 acres looking for tadpoles and then oh look there's a there's a mama that didn't make it and dealing with all that or or pulling a calf out by the feet and 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 he's witnessing these things and at first my reaction is (gasps) it's too much. But then I think, you know, it's, he, he, he came into this world. He chose these people to be his parents. So it's his karma. It's his destiny. But yeah, I mean, ranching and farming is definitely a a side of life that is so connected to birth and death. Mm -hmm. So connected. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's, that's your job. It's just, it is. It is. And I, I, it's part of what I love about it. It's part of what drew me to it too. I, I've heard you talk about this a little bit, but I would love just to frame it since we're here that the way that we as adults navigate death, that our, our children are watching us. And so I love, I love what you said there about giving, giving your grandson that, that space support if he needed it, but also space to, to experience it because I've thought about that as my husband and I have talked about having kids and, and how we, how we approach death ourselves is modeling it for our children. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, it, it, they are, they are taking their cues from us and, you know, I, I think they're extremes 
there are extremes where you can be completely open and honest and tell your kids every single thing. And I feel that that's not necessarily beneficial to the child. I grew up with that. Yeah. And then there's the other extreme of hiding everything. So there's this fine balance of giving a child what they need at an appropriate level because different, you know, the four-year-old is very different from the six and a half year old as is the eight year old from the seven year old. And, you know, everybody has their age of appropriate emotional development. Right. So I was in a meeting yesterday with a family and a, a young gentleman is, you know, young, he's, he still has, kids in their 30s and 40s so he's he's young i consider him young and he has some very young grandchildren and i and his time is coming um so i was talking to them and making plans and i wanted to know about the grandchildren and i wanted to know how old they were because the little ones are going to have a completely different relationship to what's going on than the 8 9 and 11 year old and in a way, I'm not as worried about the one and three-year-old. I'm, I'm a little bit, and, and not even worried. That's not what it is. I want to be aware and conscientious of the eight, nine, and 11-year-old. Because they're the ones that have this, they're, they're right there. They're listening to what the parents are saying. They want to be, they want to know, and they're, they're observant. The little ones, it's just very different. Mm-hmm. Um, they're picking up intuitively and, and what the adults are going through emotionally, and that does affect them. But I think our, our take, our read on the situation is very important. I had one family where the husband was going to keep the, the wife at home, and she was a, also a young woman. She was in her early 60s. Young. That's young to me. Um she passed away. She was very connected to her, to her grandchildren. And the daughter-in-law, I think, was horrified to, to consider the fact that the husband was going to have the body at home. She was horrified about this. And I've told this story before. She didn't want to come in. She was terrified. She didn't want the grandchild in the house. It was a, it was a big thing. I don't remember exactly the details of what shifted, but she came into the house after we had made it very beautiful and she was okay. It took her, you know, a few hours to kind of feel comfortable with it, but once she did, she was fine. The the grandson who was extremely connected to his grandmother wanted to come in. He couldn't understand what was going on. So she came to me and said, what do I do? And I said, just let him in. You know, just let him in. Don't don't make a big deal about it. Just let him in and, and it's okay. He came in, marched right up to the casket, looked in, said, hi, grandma, and then wanted, you know, a cookie or something. So it, we, we watched the situation and, and he was fine with it. He was okay with it. And I got him involved with flowers and, and doing things and drawing pictures. And the more... The more we can somehow make it less of a emotional heavy burden for the child, the better. It's not to 
deny it or say it doesn't exist. But it is part of life. And if we can, if the death is, if, if it's a what I call an, an easy death, the kind where somebody might be on hospice for a while or they know it's coming and it's expected, then we have a, an opportunity to teach our children that, that, yes, this is part of life. It can be a little bit more difficult, actually, when it's a sudden death or a tragic death and everybody's thrown off guard. And, and that's where it's, it can be a real challenge. And that's, that is also an opportunity, but the circumstances can be a little bit different. Yeah, it, it's a balancing act. It's a yeah. balancing act. But oh, yeah. even, even with animals and pets, we can, we have an opportunity to, to start setting up the framework for how our children experience death. Let them be involved. Let them draw pictures to help dig the grave do the flowers and yeah yeah I think it's a balancing act for us as adults too I mean I I think in many ways all of those things can be equally applied to to us as adults as we as we navigate a what sometimes feels like a, a new relationship with death for those of us that that desire to to change the way that that our narrative around death was growing up, right? Like that there is, there is sort of a a confused five-year-old in us too, that, that maybe can be nurtured by, by some of those same practices and by treating ourselves in a, in a similar manner. Yeah. And I've often wondered, okay, over the course of the generations and the decades and, and, you know, all that, has and have we dealt with it differently vis-a-vis children? Mm. You know, and I think I think probably we have because I don't know. I I, th- I think we have because I look at stuff today and people are just freaked out. They're just terrified of death. And I have my own feelings and theories about how you know media has taken it and just. Mm. Field day with it. I'd be curious to hear a little bit about that because I think, I think not only do we have we have a relationship to our dead, but we also have this relationship to death. And I do, I do think it's changed. We talk, I talk about this a lot on the podcast. I do think it's changed, and I'm curious how you feel that it has has shifted and how media has influenced that shift. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> every year when I see the big Halloween mega stores, you know, come and get your costume and stuff. That's, I believe, a result of people really getting into the gory and how, and I'm not knocking this, you know, I don't want anybody to think that I'm like anti, but I do think it's kind of a curious observation of, okay, we didn't have that. No, I don't know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe we did. But I think our fascination with zombies and vampires and mm. all that stuff has come about because since mm. since television and film. Yeah. And and maybe it's because we don't know about death and it's this mystery, we're able to take it and somehow create a story around it to deal with it. You know, in in decades 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 past we had stories we had ghost stories around fire we had 
different lore and different things always, you know, about death and things as well. But now we've taken it to an extreme that is, I think, just really blood and gore. Mm -hmm. Um, We've lost some of that mystical, sacred stuff that, you know, people were sharing around the fire. Mm. So I think media has blown it up. People love it and are interested in it. You know, I, I don't, I don't remember people doing haunted houses on my block when I was a little girl. The only haunted house I knew was at Disneyland and I loved it, <laughs> but it's just gone crazy. You know, do you think, and, and I might be totally off base here, but I feel like anytime we tuck something away and we hide it, we create this sort of curiosity, right? And I think in hiding it, we create an almost taboo around yeah. it. And this is the, this is the only thing that I can compare it to. And in that, that taboo, we, we want to peek and we want to, we want to look and we want to see what's beyond the curtain. And I think in that, this sort of caricature of, of whatever we've tucked away, it comes into society where, where it is no longer death, this sacred and reverent space where where we want to tell stories but almost a caricature of of death because of the ways that it's been hidden yeah absolutely absolutely and it's not to say that there was no fear around death um in other times uh, because i but i but i think it's the mystery factor might have played more of a role in it And then, of course, during Victorian times, you know, that was a whole field day of sentimentality and elegance and romanticism and all this stuff around death, which, frankly, I'm fascinated and and intrigued by and kind of a little like, ooh, how pretty is that black fan with the ebony, (laughs) you know, but they really took they took it to a level that might have, I don't know, because I'm not a, an anthropologist or anything, but maybe that was sort of the beginning, the spurring on of let's take this thing that happens to all of us. And it went from beautiful, sort of romanticizing, tragic, oh, woe is me and tear catchers and all that. And it maybe it just got ugly. Mm-hmm. To where we are now, where it's big box stores selling plastic hearts with knives strewn in them. You know, I I, I don't know. Um, I'm sure somebody out there has done some research on the metamorphosis of gore. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I'd be very interested to see that. I I, just, because I'm interested in how, how it, it has just shifted over the course of society and, and, and I think, you know, what drew me into a lot of the work I do today is, is kind of looking at, what's behind that curtain sort of that curiosity of of wanting to explore it uh beyond its taboo beyond its caricature right well and and then also i'm thinking okay people like you know edgar Allan poe and mary shelley i mean they 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 were Mm. writing things that were incredibly dark and gory and but still there was a beauty about it Mm -hmm. and when i read edgar Allan poe as dark and chilling as it is, there's a beauty about it. Mm -hmm. I don't think things are beautiful anymore. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think, I think for me that beauty often comes in the form of reverence. And I think perhaps we have lost some of that reverence, right? That, that when you read Frankenstein, there's a beautiful reverence for, for that. And there is still a space of connection that, that there is a groundedness to it. And it, it is almost as if throughout this metamorphosis, as you called it, we've become untethered from, from a groundedness, a rootedness in, in that, in what you put forth at the beginning, which is that there is a sacred aspect to death. Right. And, and the question of, of why do we do things? You know, I, I think we forget why something was done. Mm. goes back to what you were talking about before we've we've come so far from things that we forget you know we forget yeah why we do things. i think within that i i'd love to talk a little bit about what it is possible to do when one of our loved ones dies and and you know to come back to that that why that raison d'etre and to explore what we might do and i think throughout this process like i told you some of what i was most surprised by was i just had no idea what was possible and yeah well each first of all i mean i i try to tell families that have an ideal have the ideal picture of what you want to do, knowing that one has to be flexible. You can make plans, you can have a vision, you can have a picture, an image of what you want and try to try to hold that or have your loved ones or your community do that for you. But I think there also has to be a flexibility within that because things change and circumstances come up. So I, I think that that's important. Today, I mean, right right now, as far as I know, unless something's changed in the last little bit, you you can care for a loved one in in all your states. You can do you can you can bathe and dress and be pretty hands on. That being said, there are some states where you have to get the help of a funeral director on things like transportation and paperwork and things. So I'm making sort of a generalization, but wherever you are and for your viewers that are watching this and listeners, if you want to care for a loved one, I think it really starts with doing your research and where you are. But if you have an idea of what you want say, yeah, I want to do this, then then that's your starting point. You say, okay, how can I do this? And you do your homework. But it is legal to care for your own loved one in any state. And embalming is not required. If anybody tells you that embalming is required, that's just that's just not the case. There might be some instances if you're going across state lines and being put on an airplane or something, but even then, it may not be necessary because there are ways that you can get around that. So that's that's kind of an, a little extreme side note. But if you do your homework and there are plenty of books and resources out there, 
you can plan this and you can do this. And just like a birth, you're not going to just have a baby at home. Actually, I accidentally did. So I'm not going <laughs> to. Yeah, no, I was on my way to the hospital. <laughs> but if you're planning on having a baby at home, you're not just going to wing it. You're going to get your washcloths and your, your midwife is going to give you a whole list of stuff that you do to get ready for that. So the same thing with the death, being thoughtful about it and thinking about it. There are, there are a few different schools of thought around it as well. There are some people who are adamant about doing everything as much as they can themselves and not using a funeral director at all. And, and you can do that. It, but again, you know, you got to strategize and figure it out and, and work with that. Then there's also the school of thought where you can find a funeral home or a funeral director that's a smaller family owned one, not a corporate owned one. Yes. And I, 14% as of, I think, 2016 are, are corporate. It, it falls under one, one entity, SCI. And they have a $4 billion market cap. I was, I mean, I was just, I was just really struck by that. Yeah. And it's, it's getting worse. Yeah. So if you, if you find a funeral home, that's a local mom, pa one, you can talk to them and go to them and say, Hey, this is what I want to do. This is what we're planning on doing. Can you help us with filing the death certificate? Can you help us with the transport or I want to transport, but do I need a transport permit? Even though there's a lot of dubious funeral directors out there, there are also some really good ones out there. There's some really good ones out there. So instead of just putting them all in a category of evil people, I, I, I don't think that that's wise to do. I think we have to come together and we have to say, look, We've got to work together. The nature of death care is changing. Mm -hmm. So we can either be kind of jerks about it and self-righteous and da-da-da, or we can say, no, we need to figure this out because people need more options. Yes. And so, one of the things I've learned is that there is no black and white thinking. And the more that we can approach people with with kindness and and hoping for good intentions the better that this is a collaboration, hopefully that there may be, I don't know, and we can get some into the, the funeral industry, but I, my hope is that there's, there can be a sense of collaboration moving forward. Yeah. And the other thing too, I think that people need to know, and this is really important is that there's certain levels and degrees of what you can do if you want. So mm -hmm. maybe you don't want to take care of the body but you want the body home for 72 hours. Okay. So that's where you call your mom and pa funeral home and say, can you deal with the body? No embalming. We want to, you dress them, you clean them, yeah. whatever, put them in the casket, but then bring them back home. Okay. So that's, that's one way. Mm. You know, it, it's just a matter of creative thinking and not everybody, you don't, you don't have to, do it all. If you're exhausted and you've just been caring for a loved one who's been terminal, there are times where people say, yeah, I was going to do that home thing. It sounded really great, but I'm too flipping tired right now. I can't, I can't handle it. Yeah. So 
I think we have to, instead of being self-righteous about it, we need to be practical and we need to be thoughtful and we need to be, let's do the best we can. Yeah. I know that that really struck me in watching in the parlor and the conversation that my husband and I had over the last couple of weeks in in lead up to this episode was around our own wishes not just not just for what we want when we die but also what we want for for whoever is living and wanting that that I have a couple of, a couple of firm wishes, but my biggest wish is that it feel, it feel like, like something that the, the people that survive me can manage Mm -hmm. and, and that there is no perfect picture. And oftentimes we don't know until we're in it, what, we feel capable of holding. And I was struck and actually really grateful in the, in the film. There's a woman during, I think it's during Ron's death and is sure that she feels that she wants to participate in every, in every piece of caring for the body afterwards. And after he dies, realizes that that's not something that she feels that she can hold. And I, I really liked seeing that there, the breadth of experience and feelings towards being able to, to be there with it. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, that was, that particular woman has been talked about many times in, in different circles and workshops and screenings and things. And, and I think that bringing that up is so, so critical because you, it's, it's nothing to be ashamed about if you can't do it. And I fear that in our culture of wanting to be, you know, I guess I keep thinking of the word self-righteous or mm-hmm. aggressive or, or whatever. Yes. Aggressive isn't the right word, but not everybody can do it. And it's really okay. Yes. Yes. And I've, I've had to shift. It's not that I've had to, but I have shifted my thoughts about some of this work. I mean, I'm, I've been doing this for close to 40 years now. Mm. And there's some things that I'm realizing and I'm, I, I feel compelled to say it that, yes, caring for the body is really critical and important and wonderful. And, you know, we do what we can, right? And then there's the varying degrees of, of how involved a person can be. But what I've learned through my own experience of, experience of, of losing loved ones is that it's what happens after. You know, we're so focused on the physical, but there's something that happens after that I think we need to to hold on to and pay attention to. You know, there's a whole nother realm and not to get too woo-woo or whatever. For it's, it. it's not about that, but, and, and to, to, put it in real words or for people to understand. And, and I know this might be a little crass, but you know, when I saw the film Coco, mm-hmm. Pixar film, Pixar did it. I thought, okay, this is, this is a perfect way for people to 
see this film and watch this great film. It's fun film, beautiful film. I said, yeah, this is great. This is perfect timing right now because in a way, the message and the story of what other cultures have been doing forever and will continue to do, we need to be doing this too. Yeah. You know, this is not something that is just made up in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So, and I don't know if I'm making sense, but basically I, I think we have work to do still after everything is tidied up, said and done and the burial and cremation. It's like, okay, now our work really needs to begin. Yes. And I, I, Oh, I have, I have a lot of different questions and I, I want to frame this out first that most of what we're talking about is the American way of death, as Jessica Mitford calls it, that this is not, that this is not the global trend of how funerals happen, of how we care for our dead, that this is, is fairly unique in our American point of view. And, and so I, I think that's worth, that's worth noting. Yeah. But, you know, what you said there, and I, I want to explore it a little bit because I want to be clear on if you were, and I think I'm sure it's both, if you were speaking about what happens after to our dead and what that 72 hours leads into or what happens after that 72 hours for us. And I know that one way that I've heard you speak about this that I think is so beautiful is that, you know, the funeral is just the beginning of the relationship that we can have with our loved ones that have have passed. Another really big, juicy question and conversation. (laughs) You know, when when I lost my family members, my brother and his daughter, uh, or my brother, I should say, not my, yeah, when my brother passed away and his daughter, you know, it, it, it shattered the family to the core, obviously. And deaths like this that are sudden, unforeseen, shatter every family to the core. I mean, that's just something we all are going to share forever and ever, the whole planet. What I needed to figure out shortly after was, okay, I need to, I need to somehow, because of my belief system and how I was raised and the philosophy that my parents um, practiced in the home, I had to figure out really fast, how do I change or not change but nurture this new relationship that I, that I need to have with my brother, who's no longer physically here. Hmm. And that was profound for me because it wasn't just those first 72 hours. It became a ritual and has become a ritual, a daily ritual, if not daily, then, you know, many times a week ritual and the ritual of and not just my brother, but my niece as well, and my father and my friends and my my aunt and you know anybody that I cared about to include them, to really include them still in my consciousness and to not forget them. And that's, you know, 
when we forget those people that we love, then we, we forget them and they, they, they move further away. So I felt that I had this sense of duty and obligation and desire to stay connected, not in a sentimental, longing, poor me kind of way, but I hear you, I see you, you know. Yeah. I want to be connected with you. How do I navigate this new relationship of med- through meditation, through prayer, through thought, through song, through quiet, contemplative times? But I need to take take what I'm experiencing and and give it to you in such a way that it will help keep this connection going. And you know, people might laugh at that and think it's crazy. But it sure helped my grief, and it continues to help my grief when I shifted the nature of the relationship. Because when I forget about somebody, and I have forgotten about people, and then I go, oh, gosh, wow. But the the moment I start including them into my thoughts and my time of, of doing something lovely, like a walk or whatever, I feel instantly more connected, and I don't feel as sad. And not to say that being sad is a bad thing, but I feel more full. I feel a sense of this part of me being full Mm. of them, thus making me feel connected and like, okay, I, I know that it's hard to articulate, but it is something that I feel has helped on my journey and my process of grief. And I know other cultures have <laughs> been doing it for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. interesting to see how other cultures handle their grief and the dead. And it's just, you know, I think there's something to it. Yeah, there's a lot that I think we can learn. And I, I think you articulated that beautifully because what struck me the first time I heard you say that was that I had never considered. And and I mean, this will sound however it sounds. It feels like death is the end to a relationship. And I think that from from my worldview or wherever I was coming from and and what I've seen, well, it's it's the ending of a relationship. And and while it might be the ending of of that relationship here in the physical plane, it is the beginning of a different phase of relationship. And I was really struck by that because when you talk about staying connected, I think about the part of me that wants to avoid grief that we talked about earlier, right? That that fear of grief. And I think oftentimes in that fear for myself, I have disconnected from that relationship. And the permission that you gave me just, just in reframing my thoughts to go into and to nurture and foster that connection and to let in the richness and the breadth of experience that is possible in carrying that on through, through ritual, through whatever, whatever practice gives you that sense of connection was, was a really beautiful gift. Well, it's, I, I thank you for saying that. I think it's so 
beautiful when people practice it because all of a sudden the world opens up in a different way and little gifts start showing up in crazy ways that make it fun. And, 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 and again, we go back to this sort of joy, fun, laughter, you know, as I'm, I'm just thinking about one day I'll curse my brother, you know, and tell him to leap off because I'm having to deal with his dog that I inherited that just, you know, did something horrible. And I'm like, <laughs> ah. so, and then the next day, you know, there are two blossoms that are blooming in the middle of winter. And I'm thinking, wow, how did, you know, mm-hmm. how did that happen? That's so random. And the timing and these, all these little stories that, that if you pay attention and if you're aware of, it's they're kind of, you look at them as little gifts and little treats that are coming from the spiritual world or whatever. That, that just, it's how I cope and a lot of other people do as well. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, when, that is... when I think I'm going crazy, I go, no, 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 you're fine. You're fine. Cause yeah, you're fine. <laughs> No, yeah. I think that I think that you're very much not alone in that. And I, I think it's a, a really beautiful, a really beautiful thing to invite people to to share in in the relationship that we can have. And and I think I wanted to hold space for that too. You said this word share, that when you were talking about deaths that are unexpected that that we we share you know the world over every culture shares in how that shatters every everyone that that knew that person and i think that one of the things that draws me into having these conversations around death is that it is something that we all share in in a world where it feels like maybe we don't share much at times i think that without a doubt, we, we share this, we share, we share death. We, we share grief. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's the same. It's the same, you know, reading some of the reports coming from about the earthquake in Syria and Turkey and and all that, and seeing some of those pictures and listening to some of the, the reports and the women and the men and women talking about horrific things i always always and whether it's that tragic story or or somebody else's tragic story i always check in with myself and say is their grief the same oh yes it is because we're human but because they might be in a different language i have to pause for a minute and that's my own inability to be evolved, I guess, but I always have to stop and go, is it the same with this sort of wondering of, of course, it's the same, just because they're in a, speaking another language, or dealt with a different kind of trauma, they are in anguish. Mm-hmm. And we share that we share anguish, we share pain. And, you know, everybody's level is different. But it, it again, it's an emotion that we collectively it, it sucks. <laughs> you know, it's like, yes. Like, this is lame, but <laughs> we're going to get through it. We're going to move through it. And then you hear stories of people who have gone through just one horrific thing after another, and they keep going and they keep going. And I ask myself, how 
do they do that? What is it in our human nature that that gets us up to go again? And you know that then that spins off to a whole another thing. But I but I wanted to go back to something that we were talking about before about the the three days and or the seventy two hours. So people wonder, well, why seventy two hours or why? You know what? What it is? What is it about these seventy-two hours? And it can be forty-eight hours. It can be seventy-two hours. It can be you know thirty-six. Whatever you want. There's no hard, fast rule. But the seventy-two hours seems to be this this sacred time where there's stuff going on in the spiritual world. There's stuff going on in the physical world. There's stuff going on in the emotional world for the people around. And the three-day time seems to be this perfectly formed time capsule where all this stuff is happening. And then after those 72 hours, when that 72, 73-hour point comes, there's like a little opening, a little door, a little window of, okay, something is shifting now. There's something different happening now. I see it all the time. Every family, it's... It's the same feeling of now is the time when a ritual should start or the next phase of this process should start. Again, other cultures have been doing it this way. I think it's this unspoken, mysterious thing that we don't know about, but we feel it. And for people who come to a vigil, Many people that I've talked to who have experienced going to a three-day, 72-hour vigil, they come in and they experience something that later on, when they think about that vigil and that experience that they had there next to the, the person who's died, they then get this feeling of wonderment and it was beautiful and it was peaceful and I just I don't know what it was it was really terrific and then they start thinking about the person who's died Mm. and then they start thinking and remembering so that so my point is oftentimes those vigils can be a stepping off point to start thinking about the person who is gone in a different Mm. way and to you know maybe that could be the touchstone of of creating that new relationship in a new mm-hmm. way. So many times we we go to these conventional funerals, somebody gets up and then people t- go on and on and they're talking and and there was no time between the person's death and when you got to the funeral there's just this void of weird yeah. feelings. You get to the funeral, you da 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 and then you have a nice potluck whatever. And then you go to the burial site, bury, or they go off to be cremation. And oftentimes there's sort of this, now what do we do? What, yeah. what do we do? There's this empty feeling. So if you can have some time to see the body, to spend time with the body, to sing or read or laugh or whatever you want to do, play music, and just give yourself a little bit of time, it then is the beginning of what you could call the new relationship. It's, it's the new chapter. 
It's opening something up to something different and new. That's how I see it. Mm. And I could be full of baloney, but <laughs> I've been doing it a long time and I've seen it happen. I love that you mentioned the magic of something that we might not understand, that there's the 72-hour, something about that time frame, that that something indescribable happens at the end that we can't tease out. And uh, one of the things I love on this podcast when they come up are those things that we can't understand and that we feel all the same. I, As you were talking, I was thinking about Jared's story in the film and that there was something for me that really spoke to that vigil and that opportunity to be in celebration of him during that space and also to to share in in the grief of a surprise death and to sing and to make music and to be together and to to honor the relationship that that was and and create a space for the the new relationship to come in and i think that it was so well articulated by his loved ones and it it really struck me in that story particularly that aspect of the vigil and just how missing that has been from any experience i've ever had with death and i I I think when you say that there's this, we just kind of appear at the funeral and, and then there's a burial and there's no there's no ritual, there's no rite of passage, there's there's no connection. It, it it's a little little processed to to borrow that word from earlier. It's a little processed. It's a it's a quick meal on the go mm-hmm. when we really need a a a ritualized feast. Yeah, that's perfect. A ritualized feast. Yeah. Yeah. And and especially for teenagers. Yeah. You know, oh, oh my God. I and, and and in that particular case, those kids needed something. And every time I have worked with a family who has lost a young person. Those teenagers need it, and they might be because their 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 world is so emotionally rich. <laughs> anyway, with all, you know, <laughs> it's like yeah, they're just in the thick of it. So then, give it to them. Let them see. Let them experience. Let them, you know, process and have that time. And it's magical what comes out from from that it's Mm. just it's overwhelming it's overwhelming there's a surge and a source of of i don't even know what the right word is but you know when when young people and i mean you know 20 down to 12 when they are confronted head-on with something as profound as a death of a of a classmate or you know friend, it takes them to places that are are incredibly deep, and they come through it changed. That, that's simple to say because it, we all go through that. But there's something about teenagers that it's it's more concentrated. Mm-hmm. 
some can't handle it and sadly don't have the support or the faculties to process stuff. But I'll, I will say that the, the instances were that I've been involved with and have seen, it's profoundly incredible what these kids can rise up to the, mm. the strength that they have in them to, uh, to face and meet death in a healthy way. Mm. You know, every teenager, as far as I'm concerned, needs to go work on a ranch or a farm mm-hmm. for a year. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Right? Like put your phone down, put your electronics down and go get your hands dirty and deal with life and death mm-hmm. yes yeah and watch that little seed go from nothing but a speck into something that will nourish your body yeah and and sadly we're, we're losing that whole thing it's such a fertile time I think for, for brain development at a, at a purely scientific level, but I think also at an emotional level. And it's fertile, I think, in it's, it's chaos of hormones and everything. I mean, that depth of feeling, I, when I think about being a teenager, I mean, everything is so, it's so big. The feelings are, they're, they're so big in the most beautiful way, in a good way. I'm not, I, I, I love teenagers. Um, and I think in that the amount of, hmm, I mean, in any fertile space, right? Like you plant a seed and, and what can grow is really, truly amazing. And, and so I think, an important space to let kids experience this if if they're if they're able to step into that yeah yeah home home funerals home vigils for teenagers and parents who have lost a child mm-hmm. Th- those two groups i think benefit yeah. exponentially i mean it, it, it's just huge how being more hands-on can help Mm. again that's just me i'm not a psychologist but that's what i have witnessed and um until i'm till i see otherwise I, i i can't be swayed i was struck with the film of you know when you say hands-on we've come so far away from, from touching the dead. And I think that there is fear there. And I think that, you know, we covered a little bit earlier that maybe there's some, some of the ways that we've thought about cleanliness that we've thought about, about this throughout time has really shifted that, but how much laying hands on. And I think in Julie's story, you see so much hands on and, and not just of her body after she has died, but also in the process of her death. And I think that touch, right. Touch is touch is something that we all experience as something that has an incredible power to heal. And, you know, I think that we see this in the sort of epidemic of loneliness that is being experienced in this country amongst especially the elderly, that, that 
touch really changes us. It is, it is a part of, of how we receive information from our outside world, how we have this exchange of microbiome and of emotions and this transmission of love, maybe. And in Julie's story, to watch the way that she is touched throughout her death process and then the way that her, her body is touched. And I was very touched by that, by her willingness to share this with, with us as viewers, right? Her willingness to share how her body is being touched after death and how that is transformative for her. She was a remarkable woman. Truly. Yeah. It, it comes through the screen in a, in a big way. And I think that I know for myself, and I'll only speak for myself in this podcast, that touching the dead, I think that there's there's some fear there, right? There's some fear of of what that means, of what a dead body is. And I've probably experienced this more than a lot of people with animal bodies, this opportunity to to touch animal bodies in death and to you know, there's a beautiful woman that we had on this podcast. I actually really want to send you a piece of her writing when we're done here. Her name is Tara Couture. And she writes about death as an expansion, that we think of it as this end point, but there is really this opportunity to see it and to feel it and to experience it as an expansion. And I think it was I think about this. I don't know if you've ever listened to Don Miguel Ruiz, who wrote The Four Agreements and Toltec Traditions. I heard an interview with him once, and he talked about death in this way of like taking off a too tight pair of pants. I heard that. I don't. That's so good. And it was so good, and just a little silly, and just sort of a delicious framing. And and I think in watching the way the way that touch can transform, and that we can we can actually touch that experience, something that we we can't touch. Right? We can't touch death. We can't touch this thing that lives beyond the veil. But to be touched in that. But now every time we take off our pants, that's an <laughs> opportunity to think about the dead, right? Yeah. We take those moments and go, oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Attaching it, attaching a ritual to something. Why not? Something like that. And that delicious feeling at the end of the day when you've been wearing when you've been wearing a tight pair of pants and it just feels <laughs> the only thing you want is to take it off. <laughs> Or other garments mm-hmm. <laughs> that are restricting us. <laughs> yeah. really I oh, there's so many, there's so many things that I have for you. I I love that we've we've kind of explored how we can how we can participate in this ritual of funeral um, in different ways and and that it's scalable too. And I, I really want to leave that as a really salient point, uh, that it's scalable, that there are different pieces to this, that there's there's no there's no right or wrong or must or should that that you can touch whatever piece feels feels tenable to you and that it's possible and that there are resources out there to bring to bring this home 
there, there, and there are, there are plenty of resources now. And, and even, you know, some people who have the intuitive feeling of, I didn't want to have the body taken away yet. Mm. Don't, you don't have to wait, wait 12 hours. You know, I think people have back to the touch thing, which then goes to smell or decomposition. Mm. So people have this immediate feeling that, oh my God, the body's going to start decomposing and smelling. And it's this thing. Well, it's like, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. Of course the body starts decomposing, but it's not this sudden horrific thing. Mm -mm. It it can be under some circumstances, Mm -hmm. but if you want to keep a body for 24 hours, just turn the heat off, you know? light a candle, just do, do some things that intuitively feel okay. Mm. And just stop for a minute, take a deep breath and know that the world still continues on. (laughs) Your emotional world comes to screeching halt for a minute, but know that it's okay to just slow down for a second and be present with that person. The other thing as well, one another thing to say is about touch is when I go into a home or a place where I'm going to guide a family into this process, I always go to their feet and to their ankles. And I just put my hands on the ankles or the feet because that's how I feel I can connect with them. Hmm. And I just hold their feet and try to thank them internally and to thank them for allowing me the opportunity to be present. And it's, I I don't, it's just what I do. And if some people are afraid to touch a body, then maybe just touching the ankle over a blanket or something just in a very calming way, in that sort of maternal way that maybe our moms did when we weren't feeling well. Mm. And take it slow. Mm. You brought up two things there that I think are so incredible. And one is, I mean, one is intuition, to follow that intuition. And that oftentimes we have intuitive needs and desires in these, in these spaces that, that we can, we can lean into. And I I think that having some of this knowledge, right, that I didn't, I didn't have before this interview that of what is possible opens up that opportunity to lean into a more intuitive space when, when people that we love die and to be with them in that way. I, I'm touched by your touching feet. I think that Curiously enough, I think we we often think about hands as the way that we touch the world, but I always think about feet as the way that the world touches us, right? That 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 is our connection point as we walk across the earth and soles of the feet, right? Like there's there's something there about about our own soul for me anyway. No, that's a good picture. I like that. Thank you. Yeah. Do you have any words to say about 
making these plans, you know, for people that might want to explore making these plans prior to death, either either they know that their time is coming to an end or want to have these these plans in place? Yeah, there, there, there are different things that one can do depending upon where you live. You can contact an organization, the National Home Funeral Alliance, mm-hmm. and you can go, they have a directory. Mm-hmm. And you can look and see if there's somebody in your state, in your town, close by, that might be able to help you with planning something. There are definitely a lot of books out there that one can read to start the conversation. You can call, there There might be a, a home funeral guide in another state. For instance, people will call me from other states and then I will work with them remotely. You can talk to your local funeral director that's family owned uh, to say, this is what we want to do. Can we get some help? So, but, but I think the important thing is, is to really sit down with your family members or your community or whomever is in your circle and write it down and say, this is what's important to me. This is really meaningful to me. and. You know, if you really want it, just just go for it um, and find the right people that will help you. And again, it, things may change a little bit, but if you can really hold that vision and picture and write it down, do it. Yeah. And, and nobody needs to prepay for anything or pre-plan or, you know, like do any pre-needs yeah. stuff. That if anybody's asking for money up front to uh, do like a pre-need thing, yeah, no, that's that's not something that I would necessarily do. That's a whole another conversation. There's so many different threads and angles, but writing stuff down, maybe starting a little savings account so you can put some money in there for the people that are going to need dry ice or flowers or a casket, whatever or you get somebody to build a casket for you. Mm. There's just so much you can do. (laughs) Interesting. This, this last week I had two, two, three families that I was meeting and planning with them and getting things lined up and, and talking to them about what they can do. And we, we make a, we write it all out on paper we come up with a plan. I go and look at their house to see where the best place would be. They all on their own accord decided that they wanted to invite their families over to watch the film, to watch yeah. in the parlor. And I said, that's a great idea. That's perfect because so many people don't understand what a home funeral is. Yeah. A lot of people think that a home funeral is hospice. And it's like, yeah, no, 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 no. This is, they're, they're so radically different. We're not even in the same ballpark. <laughs> they don't, or they think it's euthanasia or they, they think it's something else. So hmm. um, they opted. And again, this is not a plug for my film, it, but, but that you was plug your way. film too. <laughs> it should be. Thank you. <laughs> that was a way for them to show family what he what what's a home funeral? What do you mean about that? They they can't quite wrap their brain around it. So they're showing the family the film, and I'm going to go over and answer questions and and talk to them about it so that they have an understanding of 
of what it actually means. And maybe home funeral should really, I'm, I, many of us in the movement are trying to rephrase it as a family directed funeral or mm. community directed, community led body care. There, there are different ways that we're, we're all trying to get on the same page to call it what it, what it really is. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like over the course of, you said that you had been doing this for 40 years, which is just no, no small thing. And how has it, how has it changed? Like, how has this changed? Do you think that this is something that people are beginning to understand, especially if we can create language that is more descriptive or, or leads people into it a little a little easier. Yeah. It's changed a lot just in the last few years. I mean, back in the eighties, yeah, the early eighties, when some of us were starting this or not starting this, doing it after Lisa Carlson's book came out and others and Nancy Jewel poor, you know, there were many people or not many, but a few people in the movement that were doing this and I happen to be one of them here in California it's there were just a handful of us doing this so now in the last 10 years the last eight years it's become much more not well maybe I shouldn't say much more but I'm running into more people that have heard about it whereas before nobody nobody knew about it but there have been a lot of articles and podcasts and people talking about it and writing books and doing trainings and workshops that it's very slowly becoming part of the, the end of life lexicon and, and people are, you know, sort of curious about it. Still, I would say 80% of the people that I talk to don't know about it, but it's, it's, getting, it's getting better and there are way more people now doing it yeah yeah and there's still you know even within the movement there's differences and styles of course yeah I mean I think that's that's within any movement there's there's a little bit there's a little bit of difference and in everything I want to touch on something you said because I have to bring this up and you you talked about the language that we use you know home funeral or or community-led funeral or family-led body care, whatever whatever that is. And one of the things that I was really struck in reading Jessica Mitford's book was how the language that we use around death is shaped. And and I, I don't know if you remember this. Let me pull this up. She kind of goes over the ways that language has changed over the years, that the undertaker became the funeral director, that the coffin became the casket, that the flowers became a floral tribute, that corpses <laughs> became loved ones and then became just Mr. Jones or, or, or Mrs. Jones uh, exclusively, um, that ashes became cremains and that to die became expired and and this sort of crafting of language that maybe from my lens takes us away and not connects us back to but I think there are a lot of different ways to look at it and I I was curious to get your take on that 
it's interesting because even now today, when I'm talking to a family, I I stop and go, did I just say that? Was that the right thing to say? (laughs) (laughs) It's been so ingrained in us that God forbid you should call cremains ashes, right? Well, the fact of the matter is they're ashes, right? They're ashes. So a friend of mine who is a funeral director actually corrected me once. And I, and that kind of sort of threw me off guard. Mm-hmm. Because, Damn it. They're ashes. They're ashes. <laughs> what else are we going to call them? So I personally find myself caught in that paradigm of trying to use appropriate language when mm. it's kind of silly, actually. I mean, mm-hmm. say it like it is, right? I mean, be gracious and respectful about it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's a whole thing. It's a whole yeah. thing. I think it disconnects us even more in a way. I was reminded of a story. Um, my mother's side of the family has a lot of humor when it comes to death. And... and when my when my grandmother died when I was a child, she was cremated and and she had her ashes. And when they went to scatter her ashes, pulled up to a, I think it was one of her cousins, whatever it was. And, and he said, you know, do y'all have Beezy in the trunk? Beezy was my <laughs> Beezy was my grandmother. <laughs> uh, and and my grandfather said, yeah, yeah, she's she's in the trunk, and her her box of ashes were in the trunk. And he was like, oh yeah, that's how we brought my that's how we brought my brother home. And <laughs> and. I just think I it's it struck how language shapes everything on this podcast. I often go back and look up dictionary definitions of words as I explore certain things with guests, because I think that the language that we use shapes the way that we think about certain things. And and so I was just I was really struck by that. And even by my own reticence in this interview of, you know, finding finding the right words and wanting to use the right words, but also what words are right to any, any given person. Yeah. Well, and what I find for myself and, and I don't know why this is, but I get a little uncomfortable when people say passing away. Mm -hmm. It feels disingenuous in a way. Mm -hmm. Why are we covering this up? They died. You know, that's the thing, or they won't even say passing away. They'll say when they pass or Mm -hmm. pass. And, so that's the one word that is a trigger for me. Mm. And I, I, and this sounds terrible. I mean, in a way I hate using it because yeah. I just feel like, let's just, let's just be really authentic. Let's, mm-hmm. They, they died. Mm-hmm. They are dead. You know, it's a body it, like, yeah. to call it a, a body. It's a body. It's a corpse. I mean, whatever resonates. I, I agree with you. And I think, I think it's good to, use those words to not bypass. I mean, it is almost a bypassing of what has happened. Yeah. But then again, if somebody feels more comfortable using that term, okay, then, then use it. I just, for me, I, I feel really uncomfortable using that. Um, yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. Cause I was, I tiptoed around some words in, in the course of this and, and, and I think it's good to kind of get that out in the world. I want to touch on before we leave language. 
that I was struck when I was watching in the parlor, right? That that was what a parlor was for and that there was a living room and the living yeah. room was not for that. Yeah. yeah, I know. I love that. And I don't remember where I heard that or read it or something, but I remember getting really excited internally of like, oh yeah, why didn't I do that out? Like, duh. Yeah. <laughs> of course. My yeah. husband had a he had an audible. He was like, oh, <laughs> oh wow. And and who knows? I honestly don't know. Maybe somebody made that up and told me. I mean, because I could get can be really gullible sometimes. So I just but it sounds good to me. So <laughs> I like it. I can fact check it later. Um, I'd love to, I, I know we've, we've been on for quite a while, but I would love to briefly touch on the funeral industrial complex. It was something that I thought we might get to towards the beginning, but before we, before we wrap up, I would love to just touch on, on, we've kind of explored some of the alternative options, but I do, I do want to explore the influence that this has had and just, just what a behemoth it is. You know, I know that I said that the, the corporate funeral homes represent 14% and growing of, of the funeral homes in the United States, but there are a lot of other statistics and and one of the biggest ones and something that that you kind of alluded to earlier was talking some about cost right and that that whether we're putting money away for a funeral or something has happened suddenly this is not a small financial endeavor and and I don't want this to sound crass, but something a home funeral can be is is a little bit more accessible from a financial standpoint. Um, and I was struck just going through some of the statistics on, you know, an average funeral costing between seven and $10,000 that caskets are marked up 289% on average from wholesale to retail, that the funeral industry is, is sitting at about 20 billion right now, uh, every year, which is, which is pretty massive. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And, you know, I, I always have to check in with myself and say, all my funeral director friends, I love you because I know where you work and you're not working for a giant, crazy corporation that has taken advantage. Yeah. It's something that I think people need to pay attention to when they are wanting to you know, either have a conventional funeral or work with a funeral home. Make sure it doesn't say like dignity on the, you know, Cooper, Smith and Weaver, let's say, and then it says dignity on the bottom. Then you know right away that it's part of something bigger. You can do go on a website and check the fine print. You can call them up and ask them directly. But if, if you really want to make sure you, you got to, you got to make sure they're not connected to SCI or, or any of the other ones. I will say that every situation that I've dealt with that has potentially been connected, not my family's working with, because uh, I, I have a family owned and operated place that I work with. Any family member or situation or phone call from a distressed person it's always resulting in a corporate owned 
funeral home. I mean, it hands down in my, my experience, there's always some, I'm dealing with something right now with uh, a family member where a body, the, the woman has changed her mind. She doesn't want to be embalmed and buried. She wants a cremation, but there's no other funeral home that will take her body. Well, she has a contract with the funeral home that she's with right now, but she changed her mind. She prepaid, she pre did a whole pre-need thing, but she changed her mind and she forgot to write it down and tell them. So, you know, that has just opened up a huge can oh. of worms and it is written down somewhere, but they can't find it. So she's stuck now. She's going to be embalmed and, and buried. So this kind of stuff happens a lot where you have no recourse. You have no, I mean, this is just one tiny little example, but you have to be clear. You have to write things down. And if you do change your mind, you need to go back and sit down and have that conversation because they're kind of, they're kind of uptight about it and can be a little bit unmovable. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that might not even be a very good example, but I've I've never had a warm and fuzzy experience. Yeah. I mean, just like anything, we ha- we again we have to pay attention and, and do our, our homework. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I don't I mean that d- doesn't really answer anything. It's just no. Sort of- and I think it's just something that I wanted to more than have an answer, just just get out there that that this is a behemoth and that there are considerations within that and that it is, can be financially limiting in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Well, and, and back to sort of the financial thing, you know, even a home funeral can be really expensive. It's all in what we decide we want to do. So you can do, I have had plenty of clients that opt for a, you know, $2,500 casket, a wooden, beautiful casket, because that's what is important to them. Yeah. So there are varying degrees, but, but I've also had families where they just did a three day vigil and the body stayed on the bed. And then they did direct burial or direct cremation after that. And they cut out all the, Mm -hmm. the stuff. And it was very, very reasonable. Mm -hmm. And still, still, still meaningful. Absolutely. That I want to highlight that too, that that doesn't. Yeah. Just because you do fancy stuff does not make it more meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not that at all. Yeah. And we can make a really fancy funeral be super meaningful and we can make a really simple, very unfancy one, extreme, extremely meaningful as well. Yeah. So and everything in between. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a spectrum. I mean, I come back to that that there there are so many different ways to to do this, to participate in this. Yeah. And and I think I just wanted to make sure that people were aware of the breadth of options and yeah. and what the alternative was. As we wind down, I I was listening to this interview with Robert McFarlane. I don't know if you're familiar with the book Underland. Have you read? I have not read that book. He wrote, 
Underland. he wrote this book called Underland, and it's one of my favorite books. He explores all these spaces under under our feet, and uh, they're they're very varied. They're um, he explores salt mines in the UK. He explores these crypts underneath Paris. He explores this underground river um, somewhere in Estonia. Just just these these places below. And I was listening to this interview with him on being, uh, Krista Tibbetts on being, and he talked about something that really touched me. And he said, in many ways, we put some of our most precious things inside of the soil, inside of the earth and, and our dead being chief amongst those things. And I was really I was really touched by that as as someone who spends spends a lot of time with soil um, from a farming perspective, but also just just that that connection. And I wanted to share that with you. I'm not sure why. No, I like that. I like that. Thank you. And most importantly, I want to see if there's anything that I've missed in the course of this interview that you feel like is important to include. We've touched a lot of different spaces, and I think that I really want to point people in the direction of in the parlor. But before before that, is there anything that I've missed? Gosh, I mean, there's there's so much. I know. I know. <laughs> go on and on. So I, I think that not to focus on what you've missed, but to mm. focus on what you've planted mm. and the seeds that you've grace, grace, graces, gracefully, excuse me, thrown out there and tossed out there. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. And just having mm. the conversation and the dialogue is food for thought. And, uh, <laughs> I I'm, love that. I'm so yeah, you you've really inspired me to actually start thinking and and these visuals and these images and you've really um, covered some rich ground. <laughs> I love it. I love it when yeah. it comes back to that. Yeah, I I told my husband that this has been a fun undertaking this uh, this morning. Um, <laughs> You're killing me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, this has been such a gift for me. I really don't know quite how to communicate that to you, what a gift it is to explore this and to open this door for myself and to hopefully open it for, for whoever needs to find it. And that is really my intention with this podcast, that it is a, it is a door for, for whoever needs it. And I did a podcast back in November with my friend Molly Haviland, who's a soil scientist. And I asked her this question, what does the soil tell us about what's possible? And this interview, I think more than any that I've ever done, has opened up a lot of doors for me about what is possible and what is possible for our connection, for our ability to connect, for our ability to carry on a relationship with our dead, and for our ability to honor our dead as they are, to say that Jane was, and to lead from that space of celebration of our dead and 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 who they 
who they were and, and who they are becoming. And I'm just really grateful for the work that you've done for the last 40 years and for putting this beautiful film into the world that I, I really hope people seek out to see because it is, it is, it is the kind of film that changes you. And yeah. Thank you. That's, that's really kind of you to say that. And talking to you has been really a treat for me. It's uh yeah, you've, you've gone deep and you have the right intention mm-hmm. and it shows and you're in the questions and your, your countenance too. So that's, um, that's worth a lot of spiritual and emotional yumminess. So thank you for for being that. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And I think that when you take on something like this and you go deep, it reminds us of how, how important our relationship with the dead is. And I, and I think it makes us feel really more alive and just kind of enriches us. So thank you so much for inviting me. I mean, really, and I, I love the work that you're doing very much. Thank very you. Thank you so much. It's just so mutual. Um, tell us where people people can find you. I'll have a lot of links in the show notes for for resources and some books, but where can people find you and where can people have an opportunity to view in the parlor? Right now, they can go to the website in the parlordoc.com. So in the parlordoc.com and and I know this is really old school, but right now they can just order it and get a DVD or a Blu-ray. We are in the process of trying to get it to, to try and find a platform that is sensitive to the topic. Mm-hmm. We feel that YouTube and all that is just not really the place to to yeah. put this. Understandably, so I'm selective, and I am in conversation on the right platform, but it is you know it costs something. Yeah. This is all, you know, independent. So people can always reach out to me as well. I'm very accessible. And if they have questions, I'm just very old school and am happy to talk to people in an old fashioned phone call kind of a way. (laughs) I love that. I am too. I love that. We still have a landline and I I like to connect on the the phone. Um, And so I love that. And, and I'll include, I'll include the link on home funeral Alliance for you. And, and so that people can find, can find you there. And I'm happy, you know, if people want to email me, you, you can put my email as well want that's totally accessible um or you know an option just yeah yeah well I think that's fantastic and I hope that you'll keep me apprised of where in the parlor lands if it lands somewhere and that's something I'd be happy to to point people in the direction of whenever whenever that comes to fruition um if it does well and it's interesting because people have been doing screenings all over the place. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. So if somebody is interested in doing a screening, they just need to reach out to me and we figure it out. But yeah, Mm. people do that all the time. So they've done, and I've actually taken the film, uh, you know, with my co-producer 
we've we've done screenings in different communities all over. So mm. yeah. That's, that's yeah. planting some ideas for me. So thank you. Thank you for putting that out into the world. Yeah. I think that that is, is a very real, something that I would like to explore. So, yeah. And I'm happy to help you in any way because it's people respond to it really, uh, richly. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's fun. I mean, it's a sad topic, but it can be lively and it can be mm-hmm. inspiring and I wanted the film to be something that people could relate to and understand and grasp. Well, and there's so much life in that film. I mean, there's so much life in that film. And I think the experience of viewing it with others, I think, creates a space where a lot of conversation can happen that maybe... Maybe we haven't had the opportunity to have all that much, right? Uh, We don't always have an entry point for talking about our dead, for talking about our grief, for talking about our our fears. And so I think that's, that's a beautiful way to open up something that doesn't always feel accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, it was it was such a pleasure. All of this will be posted on the show notes. And just thank you again for joining me and and your beautiful words. I I, I am changed from this conversation. Oh, thank you. Gosh, it was it was such a pleasure. Now I just want to get in my car and come to your farm. <laughs> I know, I know. I would love to meet. I want to hear. I I want to hear more about your your daughter and and son-in-law's farm. I mean, just just a lot of, a lot of mutual, mutual thoughts and admiration. That's sweet. Well, likewise, likewise. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the mind, body and soil podcast. If what you found resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This act of reciprocity helps others find mind, body, and soil. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, that's K-A-T-E underscore K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for the clips from their beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.